Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, joined today for the first time by Alex Janu. How are you doing, Alex? Very well, thank you, John. Excellent. And uh, you're, you're, uh, you've been here a while now, but uh, first time we've got you on the podcast, but you're covering our uh, engineering and aerospace beat. And today we're going to talk about Boeing, which has obviously been in the, uh, in the mainstream news quite a bit recently. You're looking at the detail of the supply chain and the, the many UK suppliers feeding into that. Uh, yes, thanks, John. And Phil Oakley, how are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you. I don't know what we're going to talk about today. All sorts of wide-ranging stuff, which yeah, we spoke about last week, which you've read about in your column, we'll, Tesco. We can perhaps perhaps yeah, revisit we'll that. We'll find something. We'll find something. We'll find yeah. something. In fact, there's a couple of engineers that, you, that you've mentioned in your uh, Fantasy Sip commentary this week, which we can perhaps, perhaps uh, all discuss. So let's start with Boeing, which has had uh, some real problems with one of its, uh, with its new plane, the 737 MAX. Um, essentially, a lot of planes have been grounded after a couple of uh, air disasters, and... I mean, this has potentially massive repercussions across the supply chain. That's what you talked about in your piece. Yeah, so just to recap, uh, in March we had the second crash of a Boeing 737 MAX 8 jet, which uh, an Ethiopian Airlines jet crashed um, near the town of Bishoftu in Ethiopia around six minutes after takeoff. That followed the crash of a Lion Air uh, jet in October. And in both circumstances, Boeing have attributed the disasters to the manoeuvring characteristics augmentation system referred to as MCAS and that is designed to help stabilize the aircraft that's a bit of software i mm-hmm. take it yeah. then this has caused problems before but here we are again with uh, with, with a similar issue so so what what have boeing done in response to, to these planes going down so well first of all the federal aviation authority and their equivalents in europe have grounded the planes uh, boeing have released software updates but for now these things remain on the ground and it's costing boeing money it's costing their suppliers money as well and it's costing airlines the clients money too yeah, so, so massive, massive knock-on effects throughout the supply chain. And I guess that's what we're interested in. Um, I mean, there are a lot of UK engineers who are aerospace engineers who are supplying parts into uh, the, the Boeing 737. Um, so um, who, who is affected? Um, well, it seems like a full gamut of suppliers. That Everyone, we Everyone in the sector, basically. So just a quick run-through. <laughs> uh, we've got BAE Systems, who provide flight control systems. We've got Megit. Uh, safety control systems, not related, uh, seals and composites. Melrose provide wiring, winglets, engine lip skins. Senior do engine components uh, and oxygen tubes. And Cobham provide cockpit connectivity. Um, and having spoken with all these companies, they are pretty adamant so far that the effects aren't too profound. Um, but we can take Mega, for example, who, while you know, their spokesperson told me the impact would be minimal, Jeffrey's analysts have estimated the potential lost revenues um, directly related to this crisis at about $8.5 million should Boeing's reduced production of their planes persist until September. And this is an important point. Boeing have cut the production of their planes uh, per month from 52 to 42. So far, no one has followed suit. That includes uh, CFM, this is General Electric, owned uh, the engine supplier for the jets, uh, and all suppliers are maintaining their production schedules for now. Are, are they are they potentially soaring up trouble for the future, though? So if Boeing has cut its production now, is that a temporary effect, uh, or or are we you know are we expecting lower levels of demand uh, in the for- or production rather in the foreseeable future? Are these UK suppliers going to essentially bump up against this at some point in the future? Is everything's okay for now, but are, are they storing up trouble? Um, it's di- it's difficult to know, John. To be honest, um, but what I would add is that you know, there aren't that many of these planes in the air or in currently on the ground at the moment at the end of the year they're only about 314 um so we can compare uh the supplies exposure at different 
aircraft produced and how much money they yield from each. So uh, let's take Melrose um, and G- well, GKN Aerospace, owned by Melrose. So to recap, they make the winglets, the engine lip skins and wiring for these planes. Um, well, Melrose shares have actually risen since the accidents. Investors don't seem that worried. Um, GKN makes around $4 million per ship set. It supplies to the Boeing 787. Um, by contrast, it only makes about $400,000 for every plane on the whole 737 program. So that goes beyond the max jets included. Okay, so so we should be looking at their broader exposure mm. to, to the aerospace, uh, the, the aircraft manufacturing industry, and, and this is just one small bit of what Quite. they do. These, these suppliers do deals for a number of planes at a time. Um, and presumably yeah. for, for other aircraft manufacturers yes, as well, like so Airbus, Airbus, for example. As well. Yeah. Um, okay, that's interesting. There is another effect which we spoke about uh, when we when we discussed this uh, back in the office uh, that that this has some some consequences, not necessarily in the engineering side of things, but but in uh, other other parts of the industry that need planes. And this this seems a slightly more profound effect. Sure, this is a more interesting, I think, ripple effect when we particularly to do with airlines. So TUI, for example, operate the seven three seven Max. Their planes have been grounded so they've had to borrow some there are companies that exist purely to lease planes out to airlines as and when they need them so yeah if one plane needs to be taken off grid they can go and get one these can be done either by what is known as a wet lease where a plane is supplied with full crew maintenance and insurance or dry lease where you just get the plane and the two chief executive um, for the airline david burling has pointed out uh, in recent months that whenever there's any kind of major crisis uh, be that engineering or airplane specific, regardless of whether your airline is directly involved, this has an effect on your ability to procure aircraft. It pushes costs up, the supply available, leaseable aircraft falls. And, and it's something airlines can, can ill afford at the moment. I mean, the, the pressures in the industry are massive, as I think we've discussed. Quite. I mean, TUI issued a profit warning a few months ago and have alluded to the 737. Uh, and we've seen in other examples to do with the Rolls-Royce engineering crisis, Air New Zealand have quite pointedly referred to their engineering woes in their results um, uh, leading to dampened performance. Let, I mean, let's talk about Rolls-Royce because uh, you wrote a sell tip on them last week, mm. in fact, um, <clears throat> and a lot of their problems also stem from, from engineering problems with uh, the Trent 1000 engine specifically. Yeah, so again, this has been going on for a few years now, the Trent 1000 programme, uh, this engine uh, designed supposedly uber-reliable, but the, pl- the blades have been deteriorating faster than expected. Uh, and I'll be interested to hear both of you, and particularly Phil, perhaps, in the way that Rolls-Royce have been treating the charges uh, for fixing these problems. Exceptionally, quite a, quite a large, I would imagine. Exceptional charges. Uh, <laughs> and, but what is interesting here is that the most recent problem with the programme is the Trent 1010 upgrade. Um, and as recently as February, Chief Executive Warren East, who's highly regarded in the sector, told investors at the full year results, you know, we've been carrying out inspections on these engines. We've moved them from hard lives to a more flexible inspection regime. We've not seen any problems so far. When I spoke to Rolls-Royce and Boeing in April, um, after Singapore Airlines had to ground two planes as a result of deteriorating blades on these specific engines, they said, well, these problems, we've known about them. So those are the facts we have to lay out. Rolls-Royce didn't get back to me when I asked them, well, well you know, how can we reconcile these two statements? At what point did the company become aware of these problems? So we just have to treat that um, as it is. But what it does suggest is that Rolls-Royce is really now failing to get on top um, of this program. It's hugely expensive for them. Uh, I'm sure we'll see it treated exceptionally again. I think there's also an interesting uh, 
an interesting debate to be had on the way that they've changed their accounting policies to do with R&D, choosing, I think, 2016 to massively increase the amount of R&D costs that they capitalise. Uh, when we look at the amount of money that will have gone towards developing these engines, well, money, ill use, and, you know, can we really consider these proper assets, proper intangible assets, given the amount of chaos, frankly, that's been wrought across the company? Yeah, it sounds like an expensive problem. Mm. And it's not, it's not, I mean, these don't sound like problems you would expect in the aerospace industry, which is subject to enormous amounts of safety regulation. I mean, these are precision, precision engineering product, projects and products. So it, it just seems uh, very, very strange that, that we're seeing this, this kind of, this grouping, this aggregation of, mm. of, of, of uh, engineering problems. Uh, should we be worried about flying? Uh, <laughs> the comment in the commentary that uh, you know, airline customers have famously short memories. Air travel remains one of the safest ways of getting about. Uh, it's, I think, it's important not to read too much into, particularly, I mean, isolated software problems with regards to Boeing, mm. Rolls Royce. I think there's more, perhaps, more of a systemic problem here. Um, of the two companies, that is the one that I would focus on in terms of, kind of the way that they are dealing with these problems, the way they engineer their their products and the way they account for these issues as well. All slightly worrying. Mm. Um, for investors, I guess the, the accounting side of things is, is more interesting. Rolls-Royce is a share that lots of people will own. We were discussing this very briefly before we came in. And uh, it's, it's a company you think, you know, with all the trends in air travel, you know, the, the massive growth in air travel, this is a company that should be doing great guns. I think, what do, how did you describe it, Phil? It's a company you expect to deliver and it just keeps yeah, on letting you, you know, down. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's not that many companies out there that make aircraft engines and once the engine's inside the plane all being well it stays in there for a good you know a very long time years decades and um that means there's a lot of money to be earned from servicing those engines well that's i mean that, putting that, spare parts in that in itself has been a problem or certainly a difficulty in how how we assess uh companies like rolls royce in particular because a lot of it's a lot of its money is made from what I think what it calls total care contracts, aftercare contracts in, in terms of servicing after the engines. Sales. After sales, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that obviously brings up lots of accounting issues, which make it very difficult for investors to actually work out what, what actually is going on here. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing with these companies is, you know, there's money moving about, there's money on long-term contracts. It's, you know, one of the things that, you know, very diligent investors try to do is to try and work out, you know, what actually are the real profits of, of, of a company. And it's something you feel that you shouldn't have to do. You, you should, you feel that maybe you should trust the accounts, but unfortunately you can't. And these kind of companies, you know, have the potential to put a lot of people off. Complicated products, complicated accounting. Yeah. I, I guess that doesn't necessarily apply to a lot of the other kind of arguably smaller scale suppliers in in the sector. What, what are our views on uh, on the rest of the supply chain that you've mentioned earlier, the Melroses and Cobhams? And do we, do we like these companies? We have a mixed view. Pretty bullish on BAE and Senior. Cobham have had their own issues for a while. Just want to come back to one point on on the engines and these planes. I think it's it's quite an interesting point that a lot of planes are designed so that the airlines themselves can choose what engines go into the planes. As far as I'm aware, 737 MAX is just the General Electric, well, the CFM is national engine. Um, so there is, you know, Rolls-Royce aren't as locked in to a lot of their clients as might seem the case um, at first. So, yeah, they are under pressure. I, I think, um, actually, this engine in particular it did have a hard life for about five years, and this has been moved to an inspection regime, 
which is supposedly helpful for customers, allows allows some more regular routine checkups and maintenance of these engines. But ultimately, it also does avoid Rolls-Royce perhaps needlessly replacing a working engine. Mm. I guess that actually there was another thing I think you mentioned in the uh, the piece, but certainly which has become been very big news, was that the Airbus A380, the elephant in the sky, mm. uh, the white elephant in the sky, uh, so it seems, that that program, which is it's uh, it's nearing the end of its life, and and, and actually Rolls Royce had invested a lot of money in engines yeah. for this plane as well. So again, it, yeah, and that has lowered their pipeline. Uh, we are seeing a bigger shift towards kind of more nimble, light aircraft away from these giant jumbo jets, elephants in the sky, um, as you said, and that offers an opportunity for suppliers, I think, new products. And you know, I, I don't know too much about the specifics of engines and to what extent a shift kind of aircraft type means a shift in engine type um one might think that these jumbo jets carry more than two engines four engines uh, so perhaps there's potentially a few more, few engines more that, yeah of fuel efficiency right that comes into it yeah well yeah. Fuel, fuel efficiency has been the big driver of development in, the, in this sector well, for, yeah, for some this, time this boeing plane is a is a good point in this i think ryanair have got quite a few of these planes or did have quite a few of these planes in order and this is you know, this is this is this just going back to the Boeing. This is going to come and affect the strategies of some of the low cost airlines because they need this. They need these fuel efficient planes, these slightly bigger planes, you know, to maintain and maintain their profit margin. This plane isn't finished. I mean, would you get a, if you got to the airport and he goes, Oh, yeah, there's your ticket, Mr. Human. Are the plane today is a 737 Max? Which I would you even look. Do you, how many people? This is the thing. Apart from yeah. apart from our colleague Taha, I do. I do. <laughs> who actually looks at, at, at the type of plane they're flying before they get on, on it? I do. I didn't know that, that, that. I knew you were a nerd, Phil, but that that's, says that's, a lot. That's, that's that just says a lot about do you, me. Alex. Um, I don't. I might start doing that. I, mean, I should say that again. You know, to be more specific, the seven three seven is the Max eight and the Max nine, and then there's the ten, uh, which airlines have orders for but aren't, i don't think are currently flying yet so but this is it's a yeah. software problem it's a, a software, software update problem. could potentially yeah. solve it it doesn't ground these planes forever mm. the, well, it you doesn't hope, you hope it solves it you hope it solves it it doesn't necessarily disrupt the strategies of the low-cost airlines indefinitely i guess the question is how long it drags on yeah so i don't think we're expecting any time soon for the decision to be reversed uh, on the grounding of these planes uh, jp morgan have estimated that for each quarter without 737 MAX deliveries, and that's going to cost Boeing around $4.5 billion in cash. Wow. So it's big, so big numbers for them. for Boeing. Big and, you know, reputationally, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. I think Rolls-Royce, on a reputation standpoint, it's not as bad. Rolls-Royce, we're more looking at the business itself. But Boeing, perhaps, perhaps it's a bit undeserved. You know, one software glitch in two planes, you know, the human cost is enormous limitless but perhaps it doesn't reflect as a wider business kind of huge you know bigger problems but there are there are pressures on management now uh to form and change as a new committee being set up to uh take a look at the processes for development and, and design at boeing which i think will go some way to restoring confidence but the shares have done badly and you know as an investor i mean we don't cover boeing regularly but i certainly would not be looking to invest in boeing anytime soon I think Bearball wrote about Boeing. Mm. I think they, they quite, and they, actually the shares were doing really well. Yeah, I mean this this has really come I, out of, come out of the blue. It's a, kind of almost like a, I think you know, a deep all, water horizon moment. I think perhaps not quite as bad as that. But uh, I think there'll be a lot of contrarian investors mm. looking at Boeing. Now. I think I think you might be right. I mean, it's like where where else? If you're an airline company, 
major airline company across the world, where are you going to buy your air, where are you going to buy your airplanes from? Well, you've only got two choices. Really? Yeah, I'm sure Airbus will do quite well out of this. Um, but you know, in, as you say, you know, people will have short memories. It wouldn't surprise me if this plane. I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about it, but you know, you could get a situation where this model just gets withdrawn. Mm. And they rebadge it as something else. So, so the R and D, the the IP that's been built up around it, isn't lost entirely. It just goes into something new. Yeah. Wait, uh, I mean, the complexities the seven... of man- uh, valuing intellectual property and yeah. intangible assets. Yeah. But there, you, there you go. I don't that's think anyone seriously talking that Boeing's going to go, going to disappear. No, no. Although the, the old tariff wars seem to still be going on with these uh, these companies. The uh, yeah, the Boeing. Airbus, EU, subs- illegal subsidies. Yeah. I can never get my head around that. It's been going on forever. But um, but there you go. Thanks, Alex. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, we don't talk about engineers much in this podcast because, uh, well, we haven't had an engineering correspondent for, uh, for quite some time. Now, let's talk about another couple of engineers um, that, I, as I mentioned, you've written about or you own, own, fantasy own. In your you fantasy, used to own them. Used to own. Started working for you guys. Now pretend to own in your fantasy sit. Yeah, I did own the. I actually did physically own these. Halmer. Yeah. Spyrax Arco. Yeah. And a comment you've made this week is that that they have up, upwardly re-rated and now look very expensive. Yeah, they do. They're both trading on forward rolling price earnings. So rolling is the next twelve months rather than the year end. Uh, forward rolling. Price earnings ratios of more than thirty, which is pretty punchy. Very punchy. And, and, and uh, as we were discussing on the way over here, back to our old office, we've all moved, by the way. Uh, but the podcasts still are recorded here. That that isn't really matched. That 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 valuation, that PE valuation, is not really reflected in the earnings growth that these companies are achieving. No, I think it, it is symbolic of investors seemingly willing to pay higher and higher prices for very high quality dependable businesses um whether whether this proves to be misplaced time will tell but clearly you know you're seeing you know there's no there's not a lot of hidden this is not these stocks are not below the radar you know it's like it's, you know i've been very very surprised that the extent which a lot of big medium sized companies have re-rated um, there hasn't really been any change to news flow, earnings upgrades, material earnings upgrades. Um, it's the dash to quality. It's a da- there is a dash to quality, and there's, you know you could also say there's a bit of a melt up going on. Melt up, yeah, and you know these these companies now are, you know, with interest. I mean, you know, the argument has always been and continued to be for the last few years. You get no no interest on virtually any other asset. Where else do you go? And the, the the question that all of us are trying to answer, or a lot of us are trying to answer for the last few years, is how far does this go? And my my view is that this you know low interest rates are going to you know not going to disappear anytime soon unless we get some sort of major currency crisis that requires rapid increase in interest rate. What what I think people have not paid much attention to is actually the source of the interest rate, the profits. And, uh, you know, these companies now are pricing in, even at very low interest rates, quite 
quite rosy futures. But you see, you know, you see it this morning with a company like Unilever, um, which comes out and saying that you know its sales have gone up by three percent. Three percent is not really much more than inflation, but it is a very large company. It's a very large company. Yeah, but you know, large companies—they're dependable. You know, you've had this term bonds proxy. You have a, like a sort of dependable earnings stream with some growth, and you know they don't need much growth for people to pay high prices for them, and that's probably what's you know Halmer and Spirex Sarko are probably two of the most dependable engineering type companies that you can invest in on the UK stock market. Incredibly resilient businesses. I guess, I guess the question is though, I mean, you might be able to depend upon them as companies. Uh, you know, their, their, their customers might be able to depend upon them for the, for the products that they sell. But the valuation of their shares is, is something that nobody can guarantee or underpin. No, and I think... And, and, I, and I guess the question would be, OK, when a company looks like its valuation has outgrown, any rational uh, observations about, about the quality of its business or the rate of its, its profit growth, when do you sell? I, I, I know. I'm, well, what, it's, it's, you know, it's an impossible question. It is an impossible question. I think it's something that you know regularly crosses my mind and has done for the last few years. And it, it seems that you know if you look, go through the whole process of choosing shares and businesses to invest in, we have seen the sort of shrinking of the value component as part of the decision making process. It is very much. The quality of the business, how good a company's products and services are, how competitive they are, their ability to grow, and then the valuation comes last, or is even almost discounted. This 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 has been going on for a while and could could continue to go on. So, so I guess then the problem you have is that you might think, okay, this 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 company is now too expensive, but I have held it since it was much much cheaper, and what else am I going to put my money into? Yeah. And, and, this, say, this, and this this trend might go on for some yeah, some some yeah. some time longer. Yeah, and well, you know, what are you going to do with the money? Cash. Yeah, you can go to cash. You can go to cash, but you can always go to cash. And I think you know, if you are having having a component of your portfolio, your savings invested in shares, then if you're happy with the businesses and you you know you have the mindset to cope with the ups and downs. And you believe in the long term, the long term capability of a company to grow its profits over you know the next ten, twenty, thirty years, which is what some people might be holding for. They just leave it. Yeah, I, th- I think people should be holding for those sort of periods. I, gu- I guess the uh, I think something you mentioned to me earlier as well was that you know there could be some downside for all equity investors should there be a correction. Yeah. And there were, some, there were some pretty worrying signs out there, but we have been there before in terms of those broad economic indicators that suggest something might, you know, some, 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 some horrificness might immediately befall the market. However, these companies, these quality companies, have also historically done well at times of economic stress. They will probably fall less than other, other sh- less should we say, other inferior businesses mm. in terms of their share price, when inevitably we there will be some correction, there will be a recession sometime in the future. I think it's not, you know, I think it's fairly fairly safe to say that kind of thing. But I think if you are an equity investor, if you can't cope, if you can't cope with ups and downs and the fear of, 
losing a bit of losing a bit of money on paper, then you shouldn't be in shares in the first place. But I, but having said that, I I think that you know if you're putting new money to work, you know for, for example if you're investing your ISA allowance, these kind of companies, which the ones that a lot of people quite rationally would want to earn, you know you you can see very very good cases for thinking I might not put it to work now. I think if you hold them, you wouldn't sell them because you're trying to say that you're a market timer and very few of us are market timers. Whether you would buy more, which I know sounds contradictory, um, I'm, I'm not so sure. Mm. Tricky times. Tricky times to be a stock picker. I think it is very... I mean, at the moment, hanging on is doing doing very nicely, thanks very much. You know, if you look at the start, start of the year that we've had... Um, you know, just sitting tight and doing nothing is doing very nicely for it's, you. It's quite interesting that you say that because uh, Chris Thilo has updated his uh, No Thoughts portfolios this week. The No Thoughts portfolios are basically essentially mechanical strategies that pick on a quarterly basis a group of shares that, that have certain characteristics. One of those characteristics is momentum. Yeah. And momentum, is, momentum has gone bad. It's, you know, not across the board. But but certain companies that, that who who's really whose main quality was that they'd risen a lot have have stopped rising a lot. Um, I always felt really une- <laughs> I always felt really uneasy with momentum investing because I just think it's. I think when you when you take momentum into account with other factors, other qualitative factors, I think it's got a place. I think just looking at momentum alone, well, you know, it's it's a kind of it's very speculative. It does feel that way to me. It does. It feels like, you know, am I going to go on red or black? I think I think taking into account momentum with the quality of a business, the valuation of a business I I get that. I, I think I think that's quite sensible. But just looking at momentum on its own and I, I don't get that. No. I mean looking at the current no thoughts momentum portfolio, what what have we got now? Also trader? Kind of uh, chimes with some of the stuff you've been looking at, Alex. I know you've got a big feature coming up in the... Uh, on the cars, yeah. On cars. Seen, uh, a profit warning from Pendragon yesterday. So yeah, yeah. So people aren't buying cars. Big dark times in automotives, yeah. So, uh, yeah, pretty pretty, uh, pretty tricky there. They're buying second-hand cars on auto trader, though. Are they? I don't know. I don't know what they're buying. It's, uh, I think what hap- what maybe ha- it is, yeah. What happens with cars, if you feel... You know, I'm not saying that people are feeling feeling the pinch, but... If you have a car and it works, you can always keep it a bit longer. I, t- I, I, I really thought about buying a new car. I can't be bothered. No. I really can't I think be bothered. there are bothered. better things to spend your money on. This is the problem with automakers in general, in that they actually, if you look after a car, it will last a long time. And I know that the, you know, the manufacturers and the car dealerships have been trying to get people to change them every two or three years for a very long time now. But if you want to save yourself... A lot of cash and you know hit a big depreciation hit on your wallet. Just keep your car, and that's why I'd never invest in car companies because you know you, it's a lump of metal that can keep going, and it's, you, you don't have to. It's not a regular. You know, I know it has become a regular purchase, but it doesn't have to be that way, especially when the, the economy goes down. And we are also seeing significant demographic shifts of people, more and more people living in cities where. Car use is less necessary. So. Well, yeah, when you're you're having to pay increasingly uh, congestion charges and super congestion charges and speed Emissions. limits, and there's nowhere to park. And yeah, it is driving is not fun. 
No, no, it's quite fun in the country where I where I live. I only drive twenty minutes every day. That's why I don't want to buy a new car. It's uh, it's uh, it, it seems utterly pointless. Um, I mean, I mean, talking to cars, Alex. I mean, you, since you've arrived at the magazine, uh, you, you've become kind of almost immediately at one of our biggest bears. I think uh, uh, <laughs> you've given me the industrial thing. So yes, John, naturally follow. <laughs> you've given me Aston Martin to rise on, which I love covering. Actually, I think it's a fascinating story. Obviously, it is a car manufacturer, but also can be viewed in the prism, sort of view the prism of luxury goods really and we see that in a lot of um, analyst notes compared with the likes of Montclair as much as they are with Ferrari so but it is still a mess it is still making mm. a an engineered product I mean yes there is that luxury component to it but yeah but it's not ultimately and something... I think they're pulling away from that luxury side and more looking more and more like a car manufacturer in the way that via those expansion plans they want to build more and more cars I think it's something like 14,000 models in the medium term um, per year but this, but this is where the danger lies, isn't so, it? You, yeah. you either become too mass market and, and, and obviously undermine the sort of luxury tag that you may have previously had, or you stay luxury and don't sell enough cars. It's sure. It's, yeah. it's a really tricky one. Yeah. If you fill the, fill, I mean, the Chinese love Aston Martins, but if you fill the streets of Shanghai with sort of Porsche Cayenne-esque Aston Martin sort of squash beetles, you know, it will do a lot of potentially irreversible damage to your brand. And the brand Aston Martin is... Integral, both the offering and the investment case. They're quite ugly. Those sort of uh, they're absolutely vile. Uh, uh, the, are they SUVs? They are SUVs. They are SUVs, SUVs aren't they? They're really horrible. Yeah. Uh, Jaguar, yeah. Jaguar has got one as well. They're really, really, mm. really quite horrible. Yeah, it's 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 very tricky. Very, very tricky indeed. And and actually, I think if I remember thinking back to your Aston Martin cell case, there was a big R and D thing in there as well, which which had echoes of what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, with, they, they uh, capitalised pretty much their entire R and D budget. Uh, and Phil. You can probably talk more than me about you know, about the pros and cons of doing that, but again, a, a big comparative. Look at Ferrari; I think they capitalised about a third of their R and D spend. Yeah, I, I wrote a big piece on Aston Martin. I think the week before it IPO'd. You've been telling me about it ever since. I have not. <laughs> I'm very quiet about it. Um, yeah, and I, you know, the bankers did a good job getting that one away at seventeen quid, didn't they? Mm. I mean, it's now about nine thirty pence. Oh my god! Yeah, it's slow, uh, slow tenor. Yeah, there's a for me. There's a lot of red flags with Aston Martin from an investor's point of view. What do you, what do you think about the uh, the R and D capitalisation yeah, side of things? You know, I I always think that investors should look at cash flow, and um, you know, you look at the 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 capitalised R and D at Aston Martin is massive, and as as, as Alex says, virtually all of it is being kept away from the income statement so it's just flattering flattering whatever profitability there is yeah i mean it's by pretending this stuff is something that it isn't well you gotta you know if you're an aston martin bull you gotta hope that all this cash that's going out the door now on r&d is going to come back with you know a big big dollop more when they start selling the cars that they're developing and uh, we'll see. I mean, Phil, what do you make? So Aston Martin treats their customer deposits as working capital. What do you make of that? I mean, it is it is working capital. Yeah. So, but but if you look at you know if you actually are looking at like a cash earnings, customer de- deposit is something called deferred income. Hmm. It's income that's been received but not earned. So when you're looking at the if you like looking at the cash flow, the free cash flow of Aston Martin. You know, you, you look at the capital capitalised development expenditure on the outflow, 
and then you've got to adjust for the customer deposits because they are that, that's money that's not being earned. And it's the same actually with a lot of these engineering companies, BA systems, anything with sort of long-term contracts. There's money moving around before it's been earned, or and uh, it's very difficult. And um, Aston Martin's cash flow looks horrible to me. And um, whilst I I understand there's a big fan club with the cars and they look quite nice, I think you can get a lot better for a lot less. Sure. <laughs> sure. We saw them unveil uh, their electric car two days ago. So remains to be seen the appeal of an electric Aston Martin, especially in the UK where there's nowhere to bloody charge it apart quite, from your house. But there you go. Anyway, good luck with the engineering, Bree. Alex, it's, uh, it's, it sounds like a, pretty, a bit of a shocker at the moment. Thank you, John. That's See you on the other side of the next, next cycle. Completely <laughs> <A lot laughs> penniless. A lot of hard work in this sector. Oh, because, you, yeah. because you've got to... Sp- you know, there's not a lot of homogeneity there. You know, you've got to spend a lot of time learning about loads of different products, loads of different end markets, but it is fascinating. Yeah, and it's kind of stuff that makes the world tick. I mean, this is, yes, it's proper. This, it's proper products, proper stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which, which it's is clever. It's clever stuff. Oh, it's, these are clever companies. This is really clever stuff made by lots of clever people. Renishaw, there's it. I, that's that's one of yours, isn't it? Renishaw is a, fan, a fantastic company. Uh, you know, very fine precision electronic engineering. I think they had a profit warning a few weeks back. They yes. are one of the best companies in the UK, without a shadow of a doubt. It's getting tough out there for for these guys. Um, so yeah, so good luck. Good luck with that. Cheers, John. No worries. Should we talk about someone uh, that is doing well? Uh, JD Sports mm. um, had some results this week. Yeah, this this company go from strength to strength, and it's you know it's done a fabulous, fabulous job at connecting with its customers, communicating with its customers. It's had a bit of help from Sports Direct mucking things up in the UK. But I think what's got I don't think I don't think that's entirely fair. I don't think Sports Direct have mucked things up. I think they're different companies. Different very different they businesses. Are kind of, very but, different audiences. If you look at how the pendulum has swung over the last decade between the you know, ten years ago, even less, Sports Direct was really firing on all cylinders. And uh, JD Sports has risen risen to that challenge and, and come back. And I think, you know, the problems that were involved in sports that definitely helped JD Sports two or three years ago. And they've not given that back. But they are different. They are different businesses. They do position themselves in, in different ways. They communicate price and value and image and brand image. It's image. Di- it's, it's pure image. Yeah, differently. And I think they've done a fabulous job in the UK. But I think what's got the share price really firing this week is that people are beginning to look at how well they are starting to do in Europe, Asia, Australia, and they've given a lot more detail on the um, American business that they bought. Um, Good chunky sales growth there. Yeah. Both the the like-for-likes in Europe and Asia are double-digit, and the finish line business, which they've bought in America... I admit, when I saw this, I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this. You know, the selling selling things like trainers in America is pretty cutthroat. Amazon are heavily involved in it. The manufacturers like Nike have been trying to cut out the middleman and sell direct. But they're cutting out all of the middlemen they can, yeah, except for the biggest one. 
Yeah. And that is where JD is, is finding itself. But it's more than just trainers. You know, JD is very, you know, has a lot of strength in clothing and clothing brands. And I think what what's very encouraging is that the underlying sales performance finishing line is finish line is very good. But JD is talking very bullishly about its ability to actually really lick this business into shape. It really seems like a business that is nowhere near as well managed as JD Sports is. You know, I'm talking in terms of the buying. A lot of lot of emphasis are being placed on managing the um, you know the stock write downs uh, to avoid to avoid the margin hit on there, and just generally getting this business selling better, buying better, and being run better. And I think there's a lot of margin improvement in this business. And uh, when you've got the business growing six, seven percent underlying as well, add those two together and you've got a nice growth story there. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting company. I mean, we talked about some of those engineers with the, the big regulatory propositions like like Halma being essentially recession proof. Yeah. No, no business is recession proof. If I remember back to the crisis, you know, JD Sports came out of that pretty much intact yeah i mean these are products that people buy come rain or shine uh valuations looking a bit more punchy than it used to i mean for years there was always doubt about this company i think you know sort of a, a pe closer sort of 10 to 12 yeah. was was where it used to trade up to eight, about 18 now looking yeah forward. but you've got you know you've got still got the uk still growing like for like got decent like for likes probably sort of low to mid single digits the european business and the asian business is growing well but you've got finish line and then you've got the foot asylum business that they're going to buy and they're going to turn that probably from a business that's been losing a lot of money to making pretty good margin so you've got good underlying trading here and then a a self help integration story of two acquired businesses and you know 18 times earnings for for that doesn't look bad to me. No, no, it seems I think seems this share uh, could continue to do very well indeed. Although I have to say, I've not shopped in a JD Sports to buy anything for myself for a very long time. I, uh, no, I, think, uh, I think you and I are beyond that now. Alex, yeah. you're a bit young. Do you, uh, do you still buy trainers? Uh, yeah, but not for JD Sports. Not for fashion trainers. No, no. Sporting trainers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's going to keep doing well, I would, I would think. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree. Um, I mean, I, I, I misread the share prices there. I, I'm looking at the next. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one's not so healthy. Gallifer Try um, was a kind of pseudo construction house builder. Had a, had a bit of a shocker this week. I mean, we've had a lot over the last few years, and I think you know, I think a very simple rule that I uh, certainly I would follow is just don't invest in construction companies. You've got no idea what's going on. And in fact, <laughs> and in fact, a lot of a lot of the people inside the company haven't got a clue what's going. Let's on. caveat that construction of house build houses, which has been quite a steady business for a while. Although we have our questions about that. Yeah, this is this is large scale construction. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Let's caveat that the house building houses is different. And you know, Galliford Try had a rights issue last year because um, its construction business had run into trouble. The you know, they, had, they had problem contracts, overrunning contracts, cost overruns, and the cash balance on these companies had run right down. You now, these companies, you can't believe their balance sheets because their cash flows, because it's con- con- contract business again, is moving around all over the place. So they actually have a lot more debt 
throughout the year than what they have when they present their figures on their balance sheet at the uh, end of the year. Are they a bit like outsourcers in some respects? I guess... I guess to- in so- <laughs> you, get, you get some firms which seem to do a bit of both. In, so- uh- in some ways, the only difference would be is that a c- contractor is project-based. One project. Whereas outsourcer is contract-based. Yeah. You know, regular, multi-year, service-based business, whereas this is make- building, constructing stuff on a project basis. But they both seem impenetrable to investors in terms of the complexities of... And, and their kind of risks, I, I suspect, yeah. more than any, the risks of, of knowing whether the, the the price at which they bid a contract is the right price for yeah. that contract. And there's so much competition for these contracts as well, because it's like, it's like rail contracts. You know, they are, even though they are low margin, they are a source of profit, and these companies will take any bite of profit that they can. But if it's if if that margin is so so thin, oh yeah, the risk. There might be out. some money coming if they've got it wrong. Yeah, if they've got it wrong, then it's that. a dog's breakfast. And and we could see huge and you huge see and, this, and Galliford tries construction business fits that. But I think this is an interesting company because they do have a house building business called Linden Homes. Spin it out, or somebody comes and buys it. Bids for Galliford try. I think Linden's built a few out, out in my my way. Yeah, I, they're quite a big house builder. If, if you if you look at this now, and I, I I'm not I did do the exercise about a year eighteen months ago when they had the when they had the first profit warning. I think I think it's Galliford try share price now. What is it? What five or six quid now? Yes, about six quid. Yeah, I think looking at that, I to me. Unless unless the construction business is a huge negative, then this is this is a share. If you're prepared to do a bit of digging, I, I'd have a good look at this well, because a bit, bit of dirty value. Yeah, of yeah, distressed distressed value because I think that um, the Linden the Lin, the assets of the Linden Home business surely some of the other house builders be interested in that. Although you are assuming that the house building sector is in good financial health, which we are not one hundred percent convinced about, as we have discussed many times. It's in good. It's in unbelievably good financial health today. Yeah, <laughs> fundamental health. What's underpinning that? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and we won't bore the listeners with ranting on about it again. Again, yeah. Anyway, this is a, perhaps one to watch. I think it looks a bit I of a shocker. If then, you, perhaps you know, one if to you're watch. looking for, you know, it's like a sort of special situation. This is this is a this is a share a business worth having a look at. I wonder if we'll get the fee when the investment bank put it together. Because I, I think <laughs> that that asset is a good asset. Yeah, the rest of it. You wouldn't want. You wouldn't want, and that's the problem of anyone potentially coming to bid for this, is that can they just take the the or do they have to take all the rubbish that comes with it, all the baggage that comes with it? But close, I, close it down. Yeah, but you've got well, to see out the contracts, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of co- there will be a lot of yeah. co- that'd be very expensive. But this is a share to watch for me. Doesn't fit the quality threshold, but you know if you're looking looking at potential for something that could do quite well. Under the right circumstances, that that's something that I thought might crystallise some value in that share. You've changed, Phil. You've changed. Why? Dirty value. That's not really your thing. Well, I think. I think. I think. <laughs> you know. I think as an investor, you have to be pragmatic. Indeed. I guess and the market moves on. You must move with it. No, you know it's very nice. You know, you can stick away these things that you can just leave to compound, but. 
you know, it's not just me with my ideas. A lot of people listening to this will have different ways of going at it. And I think that um, that that for me is one of the one of the stories of the week. Indeed, indeed. From a from a you know, mm, that's 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 an idea, potential idea. Well, yeah, you should always be open to new ideas. And, you know, uh, it looks looks bad, but actually there might be a bit of gold in there. Famous, famous last words. Yeah, well, indeed. Thanks, Phil. Not, not without risk, of course. Well, no, but nothing ever is. Otherwise, there would be no point investing in the stock market. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Alex. Uh, did we talk through what else is in this week's magazine very, very briefly? Uh, I've already talked about uh, Chris Dillow's um, uh, No Thought Portfolio feature. The cover feature this week has been written by James Knighton. It's about ESG. I guess our timing is magnificent, given that, that half of central London has been shut down by Extinction Rebellion uh, protesting uh, the, the, the kind of... Uh... James is currently glued to the top of the DLR. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, James James got in there before Extinction Rebellion uh, and has written this cover feature on what 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 he describes as future proof investments. I think that's true. I think we have to think about about sustainability when we're thinking about investing uh, these days. Although our approach is to look at companies who are uh, uh, managing their businesses responsibly and invest in that way, not gluing ourselves to the top of DLR trains and shutting down capitalism altogether. Uh, lots more in the personal finance and uh, fund section, which they will talk about on their podcast, which I think they recorded this morning. Um, as I said, Phil, you talked about uh, Tesco this week. Uh, lots more commentary from uh, Simon Thompson and Chris Dillo and uh, Nicole, the trader. Um, and lots of news this week. Uh, apart from Boeing, we've talked about Rio Tinto. We've talked about uh, some new flotations in the payments market. Gallup for try. Got a little write-up there as well. I think uh, reaching much the same conclusion as you. And IWG, which is a really interesting company in the workspace type business which is is changing its business model in an interesting way thank you for listening thanks again alex and thanks phil we will be back again after easter in the meantime get to your news agent pick up the magazine future proof investments beat the market by investing responsibly see you next week